Today, we talk about capturing the action on Behind the Shot. Hi, once again, welcome to Behind the Shot, the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion and all those stories and challenges that happen in between. I'm your host, Steve Brazel. Before I bring my guest in, as usual, a little bit of housekeeping to do. First of all, with this episode, and for that matter, any episode of Behind the Shot, you can get the show notes at BehindTheShot.tv. And uh, this show will have those show notes along with each episode we have a small gallery of my guest's work and a little thing I wrote about the guest as well. Also, you can subscribe to this podcast kind of in three different ways is the best way to word it. There is a video feed and an audio feed. So if you're using a podcast catcher app, whatever that might be, my favorite one happens to be RSS Radio. But if you are using a podcast app, you can subscribe to an audio feed or there is an actual podcast video feed, assuming that your podcast app like Apple Podcasts does support video. Also, the video is up on YouTube at Behind the Shot. That's the channel there on YouTube. Subscribe to either one. If you subscribe on YouTube, this is the weird part. Make sure that you take the time to click the bell and choose all. Otherwise, for some reason, subscribing doesn't actually notify you every time that I release something. There's an example for that or an explanation, but basically it's the algorithm long story deeper than this. I also want to tell you about the thing I'm doing with Don Komarechka. We have started doing image critique shows. Those are only on the YouTube channel. We've got six of them up there at the time I'm recording this. We're doing about once a month, and uh, we are only streaming those live to YouTube. So as we do that, you can actually go watch them live. If you want to participate in them, here's what you need to do. Go to the Behind the Shot Flickr group. So first of all, join Flickr. You can do the free account or the paid account. doesn't matter. Join the Behind the Shot group on Flickr and then start submitting your images to the group. Now, at that point, we have fun. We can chat about the images, but they won't be critiqued. I want to make sure I don't accidentally critique somebody's image when they really just wanted to share and have some fun. So if you want your image in the pool that we pick critique images from, make sure you use the Flickr tag BTS critique. It's all one word. Uh, no spaces, and it's not a hashtag. Flickr has their own tagging system. And that brings us up to today's guest. Now, for today's guest, I met this guy or, or found out about this guy from my friend Scott Heath, a mutual friend of ours. And Scott said, you got to have this guy on your show because he's an amazing sports photographer. And then I went and looked at his work and went, ah, okay, let's get him on. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Jeff Cable. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing good, considering that we're all stuck at home now for yeah, you know, I mean, the quarantine has disadvantages. It has some advantages as well. I'm finding out, you know, cooking is fun and I'm doing a lot more podcasting and stuff. And you get to go through your old library and reprocess some photos. Let's talk about you for a second. So you're Southern California based like me, correct? I oh, OK. I thought you were SoCal based. So you're Northern yeah. California based, West Coast, yeah. and you are a sports and events uh, event type photographer. So I want to get into your history here in just a minute, but first of all, when people come up to you and say, what do you do for a living? How do you describe yourself to them? Uh, well, it's interesting. The first thing I tell them people is I'm a professional photographer. And, you know, it's interesting when you say that because you get, you know, depending on where you go with that, right? If you're on an airplane and you say, oh, oh I shoot a lot of bar mitzvahs or something, you know, their headphones are on and they're like, yeah, nice talking to you. Um, you know, if I tell people I shoot for the U.S. Olympic Committee and I've done what will be seven Olympics. I've done six already. 
then they're like, wait, what? And then they want to talk to you. So it's interesting what gets people's juices flowing. Um, but I do, I shoot, um, you know, not just events and not just sports, but I shoot a lot of wildlife. I do a lot of uh, photo tours in Africa, Costa Rica, um, Cuba, and other places. So I actually love shooting. I have a passion for photography in general. So um, I just tell people I love what I do, which is true. It, it, what a w- weird mix, though. I mean, even you recognize that from oh, bar yeah. mitzvahs to wildlife and African safaris to you've done six Olympics for Team USA. So let's let's right. for those people that can't remember them, Beijing, Vancouver, uh, what else? London, London, Sochi, Rio, Pyeongchang. Do we miss one? Okay, so South Korea is well, um, right? And then of course, what was supposed so, to be. Tokyo, uh, you know, in two months. And of course that's not happening right. or three months. So that's been pushed out a year, which of course has affected my entire schedule for 18 months. So yeah. Crazy. Yeah. What's interesting though, is the athletes that were on the team are going to, they don't have to retry out. It's going to be the same team. I like that they did that. The way you got into photography though, is one of the things was, as I started looking through your bio and through your history, there were a couple of moments where I went, what? Because I'm an IT guy by trade, right? right. Uh, I'm an independent IT consultant. And I saw Micron and I saw Semantic and Magellan. You were you were a marketing executive yeah. for yeah. these high, high-end tech companies. How does that turn into Olympic photography? Yeah, I know. It's kind of funny. Um, I, uh, I, I, did, I was in the tech world for a long time. I love taking pictures and it's kind of a weird story, but Steve Wozniak who started Apple is a friend of mine and Woz and I like would, he would go to Tokyo or I go with him to Tokyo and he'd find these really cool uh, cameras and he'd buy multiple ones and he'd give me one and they'd all be in Japanese. He's like, Hey, help me figure this out. And so we would play around with these different cameras and it was the first digital camera. It was like the Ricoh RDC one. Um, it wasn't even one megapixel. It was like 640 by 480, I think. Um, and so I always liked shooting I, mean, I shot film as well but not professionally and then when digital came out i thought man this is life-changing this is so cool to be able to shoot and see what i'm getting and so i started shooting and but i didn't take it seriously and then in my progression of different marketing jobs um after i worked uh at the other companies you mentioned i landed at lexar as their director of marketing and of course you know lexar oh, okay. made the memory cards for all the cameras and so we sponsored some of the top photographers in the world and um just by osmosis, I started hanging out with those guys, going to all the photo shows, learning from them. And, um, and you know, I was studying like a madman because I had such passion for it. And once I understood how to control the camera, it just changed everything. Like, okay, the camera's now not controlling me. I'm actually taking control of the camera and I can determine my depth of field and shutter speed and all those things. And um, the light bulb went on and I was like, man, I just want to do this. And I just started getting better and better at it. And, um, you know, I'm also tenacious. Uh, I hate taking no for an answer. And so, um, you know, when I realized I did, the first Olympics was in Beijing and I was not fully credentialed at the time. Um, but I was there with Lexart and helping the photographers that were there and supporting them. And I saw what they were doing and I'm like, I'm doing that. I will, you know, it was so cool. I'm like, I've got to be at the next one. And so I made, I did everything I could for years to get myself positioned to shoot in Vancouver as the. uh... You mentioned Costa Rica and Africa. 
but you do tours other places as well, Australia, China, Europe, across yeah, the US. Uh, yeah, all over. We're supposed to actually supposed to be in Costa Rica next month. It's supposed to be in Scotland and Ireland in June. That's not going to happen either. Um, and then we have a tour to, um, let's see, we have Japan coming up, Cuba coming up, and then Botswana, Tanzania. Um, so, uh, yeah, lots of different places. A little bit of and everything. I was actually we just did supposed India, to be in. Actually. We just did uh, three weeks in India right before the whole coronavirus thing hit. So thankfully we got, you know, in and out of there just in time. Yeah, that was yeah, awesome. I was supposed to be in Scotland and Ireland actually in May. And uh, we had to cancel that trip. And I'm so bummed because I had some really oh, good yeah. whiskey tastings lined up. I know. It's so, horrible. I mean, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It'll all come back. I have it total will. faith it'll all come back. So I have a couple of questions before we bring up today's shot. Okay. Because shooting the Olympics, and, and I always try and gear this show that no matter who's watching, you know, most people watching this aren't going to end up shooting the Olympics, although you were a marketing exec for, for tech companies and went, I want that. I'm going to do that. And you went and did it. Right. So it's possible, but they will shoot, you know, their, their kids sports and a lot of other things that translate in many, many ways. When you're shooting the Olympics, what kind of gear do you carry on you? Um, you and it depends what I'm shooting and what I'm planning on shooting that day. And it also depends Summer Olympics versus Winter Olympics. So as an example, I usually carry at least two Canon 1DX. So again, for Tokyo, it would be 1DX Mark III's. Um, in the case of like Pyeongchang, I'd carry at least two 1DX Mark IIs and then a plethora of lenses. So I'd carry a 70 to 200. I'd carry generally a 2470 um, for wide, you know, the wider shots, maybe a 16 to 35, depending on what I'm shooting. Um, also depending if I'm going to set up a remote camera would be another reason to have a wider angle lens potentially. Um, and then I carry the, you know, a, depending on what I'm shooting. So if I'm shooting, let's say for USA hockey, and I know I'm just shooting hockey, all I really need is a 7,200 and a fisheye, for instance, on the glass. Um, but I'll still carry some additional gear in case. And then, um, if I'm shooting, but, but uh, summer let, let, me, Olympics, let me interject but, on that. Yeah. When, when you're carrying that much gear. Like I carry three lenses usually with me when I shoot a, a concert. When you're carrying that much gear around the Olympics, how are you carrying it? Are you using a shoulder bag? Are you using a no. Think Tank belt system? Well, what do you use? Yes, I use the Think Tank. Um, uh, I've got their uh, airport roller um, that I take with me, and also take their um, they, the Streetwalker uh, backpack that has wheels. And so that one's smaller. If I if I know I'm going to just shoot hockey, and all I need is two cameras and three lenses. Then I'll take all the stuff and move it into the backpack and take that. Or actually, let me rephrase that. If I know I'm going to be shooting on snow and I can't roll the big bag and I need to switch to a backpack, then I'll take the smaller bag and, and hoof it when I need to over snow. And then if I'm back on streets, I'll put it into a roller mode and save my back. Um, and then if I'm shooting summer Olympics like water polo, then I'll take, typically take the bigger lens with me, like the 200 to 400. Um, and that's my primary lens for shooting if i'm shooting let's say track and field or water polo or those types of things so that that one and i usually rest that on top of the roller the airport roller and roll that as one i try to just to save my back that's why i do see and i love your water polo shots one of the ones we had looked at as possibly covering actually was a water polo shot i was a water polo goalie in high school and i still oh, cool. to this day love water polo so when when you're out shooting Olympics, obviously it's photojournalistic and you're shooting for the Olympic committee or, or in some cases Lexar, whatever it is. 
you don't carry any artificial light though, right? No, you can't actually. So the, the Olympics are really interesting. Um, no tripods are allowed in any venues. Uh, no flash or artificial lighting is allowed at any venues either. So they don't, the last thing they want us to do um, and the image that we're going to look at today, the last thing you want to do as an athlete's, you know, coming down at hundred miles an hour or whatever they're coming in at is the puppy popping flashes at their face when they're trying to concentrate. Right. So um, none of that's allowed. Um, the only time I'm, I, and I do take a flash with me. So I take a Canon 600D XRT flash with me one. And that is for um, during the press interviews. So after the sport, every athlete, well, not every athlete, the ones that TV uh, wants to interview or any reporters want to interview, they go, when they leave any Olympic venue, they go through, it's called the mix zone. And, and that's where they can get interviewed. And generally the communication manager of the team will tell those athletes like, Hey, you six need to stay. And because you're being, people want to interview rest of you right. can go change. So, when those are being interviewed, um, depending on the lighting situation, I may or may pop a flash there and I'm allowed to. Um, believe it or not, they have a separate interviewer area in the mix zone for uh, broadcast media. Then once they're done interviewing for television, they come through and they come to the print media. And that's where if I'm popping a flash, no one cares. So sometimes I'll use a flash there, but but the lighting is generally pretty good and not always necessary. Okay. Yeah. And again, it's really, it's photojournalism. So yep. You know, you're going to go available light as much as you can in many, many ways. So yeah, let's let's talk better. about today's shot. All right. Yeah, and it also looks better. Yeah. Good yeah. So let's talk about today's shot because this shot, as we were looking through shots, and I had my wife with me here as I was looking through some shots, which I do often actually, and we both kind of looked at this one and went, wow, I wait, how did, you know, it was one of those moments where it's, <laughs> I don't even know how you got it. So I'm going to try like I always do. And describe this shot for those of you listening on audio. But as I always say, go look at the image. You can see it over at BehindTheShot.tv. Look up the episode with Jeff and and, and uh, you'll understand what I mean. So this is a ski jumper. And when I say ski jumping, this is clearly the, the guys. It's not like, you know, mogul jumping or anything. This is the large ski jump. It is. And clearly, this guy has crazy height. I mean, it's just obvious way off the snow, the snow, or I should say that I'll call it the ski run that he's jumping over has two things that stand out. One is the Olympic rings. Three of the Olympic rings are right behind him and he's dead center in the middle ring. It's just the middle of his, the bottom of his skis are dead center and he goes right up between the red and the blue ring. It's just, I mean, it's so perfectly composed. His body and everything are above the rings. His hands are back, right? The other thing that the snow or the ski run has that to me really makes this shot is this motion blur that the skier does not have, right? right. So right. you've got motion blur in the snow showing the motion, but but the skier is just locked and frozen, arms back, ski tips up, and he tacks sharp, right? Amazingly sharp. So let's talk technical first, because I know something about the technical in this shot that to me almost makes it damn near impossible to get the shot you got. <laughs> and it was. I mean, it took me a lot of frames to get this one photo, I have to say. So give me give me camera, lens, and EXIF data. Okay. Uh, camera was a Canon 1DX Mark II. Um, and, uh, I, and I should mention, I always shoot two cards. So I, because I worked at Lexar and I know what can happen to memory cards, I always shoot to two and I use the ProGrade uh, cards now. 
uh, two cards in the camera. Um, I, I already went to the ski jump um, knowing what I wanted to capture. So this was a kind of a pre-vision in my head of what I wanted. Um, the lens I was using was a Canon 200 to 400. Um, and I, that's the long one I brought with me to capture the shot. Um, and uh, I did bring a monopod and I found that in trying to track the skiers with on a monopod, although it was saving my back, was just not conducive to getting the shot. So probably within 10 minutes of trying to get the shot, I just took the, the lens off the mono and handheld the whole thing. That's uh, interesting which, that you say that because I've used the 402.8 with a monopod and I can envision if you are, if you're doing nothing but tracking left to right, monopod would be great. Even yep. even if you've got a mono head that lets you tilt up and down, at that magnification, if you're trying to track on two different planes, an X plane and a Y plane, mm -hmm. it's really, really hard. It's a lot easier handheld. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, it's just it's backbreaking, but it was the only way to get the shot. And I and I tried, you know, in hindsight, if I had brought a 100 to 400, which is a much smaller lens, um, it would have been a lot easier to shoot probably. But the advantage of the 200 to 400 lens is I can flip the tele built-in teleadapter and the 1.4 and go to 560 millimeters, which is what this was shot, this was shot at. Um, so it gave me more reach, but of course it's a lot heavier. I mean, the lens is massive. So, I mean, this is, this is what I was handholding and, you know, it's a lot of weight, especially with the camera attached to it and trying to track this. And of course, as you know, with motion panning, you've got to be absolutely still, um, Otherwise, you're not going to get a tack sharp image. So trying to hold that, you know, as perfectly as you could on every jump, it was uh, it was painful. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things that are that are interesting to me on this. I mean, there's a lot of things that are interesting to me on this. First of all, it was F7.1 ISO 160. And a fortieth of a second. Yeah, How does so that, that was the happen? challenge. Yeah, so again, I I had previsioned what I wanted. So I um, I had already done the safe shot. So whenever I shoot the Olympics, I shoot safe shot first, which is thousandth of a second ISO one thousand or whatever, and I'm I'm locking them in and I'm just firing as they're coming down the jump. And so each jump, I shoot, you know, and freeze the action, and I got it. I mean, I looked in the camera. I'm like, okay, I got those. But they weren't inspiring and they weren't different. And the thing with when shooting the Olympics is like when I shoot the Summer Olympics, you've got 2,200 photographers who are spread out amongst the games to get their shots. Um, and if it's a big event, let's say Michael Phelps in the pool, like when we were shooting in London or sorry, in Rio, there might you may have a thousand of the photographers all vying for that same shot. And so how do you make it different? And so here I was shooting and I thought, okay, I need to motion pan this and, and really, you know, blur the background and get the, the ski jumper in focus. And so it was, I started with 80th or a hundredth of a second and panned it. And I you know, kind of felt like, okay, maybe that's not enough blur in the background. So I kept, you know, lowering the shutter speed. Yeah, go ahead. When you say you weren't sure if that was enough blur in the background, were you uh, were you chimping or are you going? Yeah, I was gut? chimping. Yeah, so in between the jumps, okay. I'd look at the back of the camera and go, "Yeah, it looks good, but it's well." Here's the challenge. I had numerous challenges to get the shot. One is 
first and foremost, as you understand, with a really slow shutter speed is how do you track a ski jumper that's coming at you so fast? Um, and with that, in my lens, case, you don't, <laughs> yeah. um, I do a lot of motion panning. So I, I, you know, I practice it a lot, but trying to track them with that lens and the camera in your hand was very difficult. So that was the first thing was getting them sharp. Second thing was, um, getting them over the rings and every ski jumper would vary in their position. So sometimes I'd have them off to the side of a ring or off the rings or shoot it. I'd get them tack sharp, but they'd be not over the rings. I mean, there was like, there was, there were so many variables um, that it made it really, really tough. And then of course, on top of that, what outfit they're wearing. So I want to show the Olympic rings on the bib, which I did here, um, but you know, the color of the helmet, the color of the outfit they wore. So this guy actually was wearing white, which normally you'd say, I don't want to have white on white. Um, you know, there's a white outfit over the snow, but as it turned out, it kind of worked. But, you know, that's just luck of the draw at that point, because I was fighting so hard to get one shot at 40th of a second, dead center over the rings, like you said, with the hands out, and the skis out with the right form, um, mouth kind of in the right position. Because sometimes when they ski, they open their mouth really wide and it looks weird. Like, um, and so it, it took um, a lot of practice and a lot of shots and a lot of luck to get, I mean, literally, it's funny because when I looked at what your podcast is about, and it's about dissecting one image, I mean, I always tell people, this is one of the hardest shots I've ever taken in my life. And you found it. <laughs> Credit to you. Yeah, well, and <laughs> no, no, no. Credit to you, my friend, because the the motion blur in the snow is the shot, right? Yep. The decision to go 140th and pan, and the panning would have given you some motion blur anyway, but it's accentuated by your choice of shutter speed. And what that does is it gives you the motion blur lines that we're used to that you almost think about seeing in Photoshop when you do a motion blur filter, which turned the white snow grayish. That's right. Which brought the white outfit out. And again, not only are the hands back, but the hands are perpendicular, or I should say almost parallel to the snow. Right. So palms up type thing and fingers spread. The head could have been down. The head is up. Right. The chest is up at just the right angle to get the, like you say, the, the rings. rings on the chest. But the fact that the tip of his skis, the back tip of his skis, I shouldn't say tip, actually, I should say the rear of his skis. Yeah is dead center in that middle ring. And he intersects this in just a perfect way is literally, I can honestly say, I mean, sometimes we joke and say, oh boy, I'd never get that shot. No, no, I'd never get this shot. It would be physically impossible at my skill level to get this shot. And I pan and zoom and catch fast subjects all the time. Do you know who yeah, this a challenge. is? Uh, you know, it, it, it's a challenge. And when I teach, like we just did a, a workshop, we did a workshop in India, we did a workshop in Cuba. Um, and both of those trips, I'd say like, okay, in Cuba, you have all the old cars. So what better than to pan those? And, you know, it was awesome. And I was teaching the whole group, pan, you know, pan the cars. It's way more interesting than just having a frozen car on the street. And the same thing in India, you got the tuk-tuks and, you, you know, you have horse and buggies and, you know, you got to get that. And that's, you know, so much more interesting to pan it than it is just to freeze it. So, and I, 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 I may have missed your agree. question on that. So sorry about that. No, I, 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 I don't even remember. Cause I'm just sitting here staring at this image 
in, in awe. But how far, okay, so you mentioned, you know, for swimming, you could have a thousand photographers or whatever it is. And for this, you've oh, yeah. got, I've been in a crowded photo pit before with 70 photographers and it felt dangerous. <laughs> Because everybody is jockeying for position. Yeah. Everybody is jockeying. Nobody wants the same shot. But the truth is, when you're this far away, in a lot of cases, you're all going to get the same shot. Except if you use knowledge to make a shot like this that stands out by dragging a shutter or something like that. Other than that, it's it's geometry, right? If you're really far away and you've all got a 400 lens or a 500 lens, Geometry is your angles aren't that different, even if you're 15 feet apart. At, at a certain distance, those angles converge. So you did such a great job here of making it different. How far away are you here to shoot at 560? So, yeah, so 560 millimeters, which actually, just to go back for a second, if you think about shooting at 560 millimeters, which is the 200 to 400 with a built-in extender turned on, so you're all the way zoomed out and you're at 40th of a second. And, and that is what makes this shot so difficult. If you were to try to pan this at 40th of a second at 25 millimeter lens, it wouldn't be hard. Um, but zoomed at this level, that's what made it really tough. So I actually, um, what I did was, and believe it or not, at the Olympics, they have, they have spots where you stand that are approved shooting locations. So for instance, for ski jumping, we're allowed to actually go and walk up the stairs all the way along that jump. So you can go up the whole side if you want to. And I started there. And then when I realized, okay, I got some safe shots. I didn't really like the what I was getting. I went down, back down to the bottom. And um, I was alone. Um, so in the Olympics, they have pre-approved spots and they have, we can shoot from public spots so we can go into the crowd and shoot as long as we're not taking someone's seat or whatever if it's an open seat we can sit but this was on the snow on the side of the jump kind of where they're coming toward after the landing so i was using the long lens and i was by myself out there um and what i did is i kept moving my position to try to get in the angle where the person would be right over those rings and again the challenge was every jumper would vary by, you know, 10, 20, 30 feet. And so, you know, one guy might hit it and one guy wouldn't. And so, and then of course my angle would be wrong for all the rest of them. And so it was me just trying to keep moving to try to find where most of them were coming in and then get the shutter speed, as you mentioned, to, to create the blur of the rings. And I want you to see the Olympic rings behind as it's coming down, but I don't want them to be frozen because then it becomes almost um, competing with my subject, right? So by blurring the snow and the rings, now it takes your eye to the ski jumper. And that was the whole goal behind the shot. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because the rings in a way are the race are, are the wheels on a race car, right? This is a guy suspended right. from a crane, if not for seeing motion. I right. mean, this is a movie stunt where he's on cables and happens to be hanging there. Unless you see motion, it's like a race car. If the wheels aren't turning, as far as you it's know, boring. it's parked, yeah. right? So in doing that, you told so much, but I want to go back to two things here. Uh, my mind is churning. You're shooting on a, on a 200 to 400 with a built-in 1.4 teleconverter, which gets you to 560. Now, the standard right. rule of thumb for everybody is one over whatever your, your focal length is. Right. I know people that shoot a 70 to 200, not naming any names. Uh, <laughs> 
that think, okay, I've got to be at one over 200 or I'm not going to be stable. Shooting a 70 to 200 at 140th, oh my gosh, no way, I'm not going to do it. Right. You shot 560 yeah. at at one over 400th. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, one over 40. Yeah. So when you're shooting something like this, I want to get, I, I kind of want to get technical here because this is, okay. this is an area most people struggle. There are so many focus modes now and so many right. rules of right. thumb. There's, you know, back button focus. Some people like, like a lot of live music shooters like me, like back button focus. There's on a 5D Mark IV or a 1DX series, there's case modes that you have right. that, you know, case one through whatever. I happen to use case four for what I shoot. And then even those you can go in and customize. There's single right. point. There's dot point. There's single point, but point expansion. And the point expansion can be four points or nine points um, or not nine points, seven points around it, right. whatever it is. Three on the top, two on the sides, three on the bottom. Uh, then you have zone. Then you have, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. when you're setting up to do this and you want that skier in focus, explain to me your thought process on how you do focus. So, um, yeah, and all those points that you brought up are correct. Those are all options that we have to think about. So in this case, I'm single point focused. I, I probably could have done the cluster, um, the small cluster, and didn't. I went to single point focus, and my goal is to keep that focal point right on the helmet of the skier, and that's what I was trying to do here. Um why, as far as the cases, why not expansion? Um, I I probably could have done expansion here, and I don't remember if I did or not. Um, I generally, if I can, I prefer a single point of focus to really lock in exactly where I want it, um, as opposed to letting the camera kind of, you know, go kind of in a more of a general mode. I probably could have, and I tell you what, the One DX Mark III, which I have here, um, actually right here. Um, with the 1DX Mark III, with the ability to now use the joystick back here and, and move the focal points, but also it's got the head tracking. So um, it would be interesting, and something I was looking forward to in, in, uh, at the Tokyo Olympics, which will now be a year later, is to you know see how much of an advantage that is. So I just wrote a blog um, post of reviewing the 1DX Mark III, and I shot a uh, uh, San Jose Earthquake uh, soccer game. And... It was crazy cool because I could just lock in on an athlete. And even though I wasn't staying dead center on them, it would still track them. And one of the things I've yet to do and I want to do, and I should do this this week, is um, get my daughter or someone on a bike and try motion panning out in the on, uh, outside maybe at dusk. So I've got really slow shutter speeds and let the camera lock in on, on the head and see if, I, if, if my take rate is better. Uh, on the motion panning, but that generally would be an interesting I am test. Focused. It would be a really interesting test, and I've yet to do it. But um, generally, I, I don't mess with the case modes as often as I probably should. Um, but generally, it's center point focus, back button focus, and then a lot of it also when you're doing motion panning is breathing technique, standing technique. You know, I, I have my legs. Uh, I, I turn myself into a, a tripod, right? So I spread my legs to get um, a steadier stance, tuck my shoulders or, or you know, get, get my shoulders in and my elbows in and hold it. And then I breathe when that jumper would come down, it's a matter of breathing. Cause again, at 40th of a second, when you're at almost 600 millimeters, if you breathe wrong, it'll blur the image. And so, um, and I should say that, I mean, I probably took, I don't know, five, six 
700, I don't know how many images I took to get this one. And I had some other ones that were good, but it wasn't this one. And this one really stood out and it was, you know, but it took that many to get it. That's, that's interesting. So if people want to read, you said you wrote a blog post about it. Where can they go? Yeah. So the blog is just blog at Jeff K or sorry, blog dot Jeff Cable.com. Um, or you can just go to jeffcable.com and there's a, a, a menu item there to take you to the blog. And I blog about you know what I'm shooting, shooting, how I shot it, um, and you know, and I give all the details and I put the metadata in for a lot of the images I'm shooting because to me, sharing the passion for photography is more important than gee, I've got some secret sauce. Um, and so, like when we do the workshops. Um, I love teaching the technique for how I'm doing the motion panning. And it's amazing to see people's reactions when they get their first really sharp, nice motion pan, because I know that feeling. And and so I, I share everything on the blog um, and you know, I try to post stuff on, on social media and all that because it's fun to share that with other people. And right now with the whole um, shelter in place going on, one of the things I've been, I just started, yeah, I've been doing some Facebook lives, um, which I haven't done in a while because I've been traveling so much, but uh, I, I did my first Zoom uh, conference with everybody, which was a disaster because we had trolls coming in and messing up everything. So now I've just uh, created uh, an invite so people can email me and tell me if they want to be in the next Zoom conference. I just started that this uh, last night and I've already had hundreds of people write in and say, here's my email address, invite me. So that way we can keep it private. And that's a no holds bar questions and answers, anything people want to ask about photography. And um, it's really fun to be able to share that with all these people. And, um, and again, and hear their, you know, their excitement for what they're doing as well. Yeah. It's, and a big thing with the zoom is, you know, locking those meetings down, you know, in advance, a lot of those preferences are there. It's just the default settings are a little weaker. Well, Um, I made the mistake. I actually, I have a question for you. Sorry, I, I posted the, the URL and the password and said, hey, just come join in, which was a uh, that is a recipe for disaster. So don't do that for those of you looking yeah. to do it. And so I had, a, uh, yes, don't share your screen. Um, mute everybody when they come in, which some people can, I guess, hack and unmute. But do your best to do that. And like I said, I'm just locking it down now where I, I will send an invite to those people who said they want to be invited. But it was it was cool when it, when we did get rid of the, the idiots that were out there it was great to have this conversation with all these people and, you know, be able to answer their questions. Yeah. I mean, that's one neat thing about the shelter in place is all of this kind of group thought. I'm doing the thing with Skip Cohen, uh, F64 lunch bunch. That's great a guy. blast. And, um, so if you were, before I get back into this photo, there's something, cause I use back button focus and I describe it to people all the time, different people. I've seen David Bergman describe it before. Why do you tell people or how do you tell people, I'm trying to think of the wording there. How do you describe to people what you see as the advantage to back button focus? Um, well, a couple of things. I, I feel that gives me more control um, of what I'm shooting. And a lot of it is the, the ability to focus and recompose. And so right now using an SLR, not a mirrorless camera, um, it allows me to um, lock that focus and choose when I'm focusing when I'm not. So one of the examples I give people is if I'm shooting uh, diving 
at the Olympics where I'm in the stands. I'm always at the same distance from the diver every shot. Well, when they go to the front of the board and they do their kind of mental prep and they put their hands up in the air and they get ready and then they go back. Well, I can lock in focus on them at the front of the board when they prep and then let go of the button and just fire shots because I'm always at the same plane from them. And then I don't have to worry about my focal point drifting to the stands in the background and getting the audience and focus, not them. So that's one example. And the other thing is, the other example I give a lot is like, for instance, since you played water polo, let's use water polo. So if I have an athlete in the pool and he's got the ball over here and he's got the, he's kind of at the edge of the pool here and I know he's going to throw it this direction, right? I can lock focus on his face and he's going to sit there and he's going to fake and, and then he's going to pass it. Well, I know it's going this way. So I can move my frame to include more off to the side and get the ball in motion off to the side. And so until that swimmer moves, I know that I can just lock it in place and get the shot. The same thing is true uh, when I shot the soccer game, when I was testing the 1DX Mark III. If I see that our team is going down and they're going to shoot, and this really works well in water polo because you have a shot clock. So I'm watching the shot clock, and it'll be like going down to six seconds. Okay, well, they're going to take a shot on the goalie. So I'll back button focus on the goaltender's face, and then I'm just ready to shoot. As soon as that clock goes down or I see them take the shot, I can fire and I don't have to worry about the athletes in front of the goalie creating a focal point that's off. And so it's all of those reasons yeah. um, that it works well. Yeah. And and that way, when you do press the trigger, it doesn't refocus. And water polo actually is a great example in that if somebody, you know, in water polo, whoever has the ball often will rear up and start pumping the ball with, with their arm. Right. But- while that's happening, you can use back button focus to focus on their face. But then at any given point in time, water starts splashing up oh, yeah. in great volumes in front of them as people are trying to take the ball or are, people are trying to defend. And in that case, that water could actually pull focus. And by, by being able to push that shutter, that's not going to happen. So water pull is a good example for that. Yeah. And, and um, this is something that we do deal with. The same thing is true in ice hockey where the spray of the ice or a defender comes in front of you, or or the ref gets his butt in front of you. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that this happens. And so, yeah, having that control to focus when you need to, but also pull off on that, if you see a distraction coming, like water coming up, you could lock it, let go, and shoot. It does give you that little extra to get a better take rate on your images. Yeah, and I will say, once you go with it, it's really hard to to go back. So well, back I, to this I, image here. Actually, I even use it when I'm shooting things like a bar mitzvah. The kids up in the chair for what they call the hora, where they're, you know they're putting them up and down the chair. Well, if I have a shot of him as he gets in the chair, and I can lock in and get a focal point on his face, as soon as they lift him in the chair again, he's not changing a plane for me. He'll be lifting the same distance from me. I can fire off a bunch of shots and and get him without having to worry about focus. I will, once I get three or four shots of them up in the chair, I will try to get another focal lock on them and shoot more and then do it again after another four or five shots just to make sure I get it. But it, it gives you control in almost all situations. So I use it for portraits. I, I mean, I, mine's on back button 100% of the time. Yeah, same here, same here. So back yeah. to this shot. The yep. balance and symmetry in this, as we talked about, spot on, right? And And it's one of those, like when we do critiques, you know, one of the things is dead center is deadly, but unless usually it's like a reflection landscape type shot. This is one of those situations where because you have that foreground subject almost superimposed on the background subject, you've got a scenario where dead center really, really works. So now I want to get into 
uh, just like a quick overview, what would you have done to a shot like this in post? Because I'm guessing you're not allowed to do a ton. Yeah, so Olympics doesn't allow us to do any cloning or anything like that. Um, so we're allowed to adjust white balance, exposure, shadows and highlights, and crop. That's really it. And so that's really all I did in this image. I'm looking at the image now on my screen as well, just to kind of remember that. But um, that's it. Um, and again, I have some shots of like Michael Phelps swimming where there's a dry spot on his cap and it drives me crazy. I'd love to just knock it out, but I'm not allowed to. Um, and on this shot, um, it's funny. There's really not much that I did to this other than, like I said, maybe um, adjusting exposure. Although I was probably shooting. Um, yes, I was shooting flat. I was not shooting at like plus one, even though I was shooting in the snow. So I probably had to brighten it in post. Um, but uh, that's about it. No sharp. So exposure, white balance, crop. Can you dodge and burn? Uh, you can, although typically don't. Um, so the weird thing about the Olympics okay. is my deadline when I shoot for the SOC is 14 minutes. So when I'm shooting an event, let's say we'll go back to water polo or in the case of you know, whatever I'm shooting. I have 14 minutes to get images, you know, I'll do the, everything we just talked about, exposure, white balance, shadows, highlights, cropping. And then I've already pre-written a script inside of a photo mechanic to resize those down to, let's say, 1800 pixels or whatever the team wants and to automatically put it into a folder that's Dropboxed back to the U.S. to the team. And so because wow. we're working on a deadline like this, so I'm using the MacBook Pro 16 inch now because it's so damn fast. Um, I'm using the fastest memory cards. I'm using a Thunderbolt 3 reader for CF Express, which is the new memory cards that are in the 1DX Mark III. Um, and so I am all about speed. So the, the idea of going in and saying, oh, I'm a dodge, I'm a burn, I'm a di no, forget it. It's like, get this thing cleaned up as fast as possible and get it out of here. So in a, okay, actually one, one more quick question before I bring the shot back up. If you're putting one of these shots in your portfolio, like that spot on Michael Phelps, you know, water cap, at that point, would you touch it out for your portfolio? Yeah, I still don't. Um, I, I could probably, okay. um, if I don't sell it, uh, if it's just for me, I don't. Um, so the rules, the Olympic rules are incredibly strict. I mean, you, you had mentioned that you were happy that the athletes who qualified for the Olympics are still qualified. Same is true for the media. So because I was already... Um, credentialed for Tokyo for this year, we are pre-credentialed for the next one. Um, but getting credentials, you know, there's like for winter, I don't know how many there are for the US, maybe 60 or 70. I'm the only independent photographer uh, for the USOC, everybody's shooting for one of the big newspapers or magazines. So it gives me freedom. Yeah, it's cool. It gives me freedom to go move and shoot whatever the heck I want. So I shoot for the blog. So I shoot my contractual stuff for the team. And once I'm done with that, I can go shoot stuff like ski jump, which was not contractual. And I can do it strictly for teaching and for the art of doing it, which is fun. And um, and so that's kind of my goal is to, to do that. But the credentialing process and the rules are incredibly strict. Like, you know, like I said, no tripods, no flash, no video. We can't put our cameras in video mode. We can't even take our iPhones out and shoot. I can't do a Facebook live or anything from any Olympic uh, venue because now I'm competing with the live broadcasting rights of right. NBC. So, th so they have all these rules and trust me, um, the rules for photographers on how you shoot, where you shoot, when you shoot and respect for other photographers um, is strictly enforced. And I've seen people get their credentials ripped off 
um, and sent home, like we're not allowed to ask for autographs, for instance. And there's a uh, photographer shooting for one of the major, um, um, uh, well, a major entity, we'll say, who uh, had a puck signed by Sidney Crosby um, and was very proud of it and showing it to people. Well, as soon as the uh, the officials found out about that, her credentials were gone and she can't shoot. And and I'm not talking about, you know, that just that Olympics that probably would default you from shooting any Olympics anymore. So I, I tried to stick right. to the rules pretty, pretty strictly. Yeah. Um, so before we go away throughout the show, Jeff's social media stuff has been popping up underneath him, his YouTube and his Instagram, Facebook and everything. But for those of you listening on an audio feed, I do want to go through those really quick here. So what's your website? Just jeffcable.com. So J-E-F-F-C-A-B-L-E.com. Okay. Jeff Cable Photography on Instagram. And Facebook. Jeff Cable Photo on Facebook. And then J Cable 12. I know. On Twitter. I created that a bazillion years ago. I know. You know I, I, I don't use Twitter a ton. And I just did my, you know, it's my favorite number. It's my hockey number. So I play hockey and my, my number's 12. I don't know. It just was what I picked at the time. Go figure. <laughs> and then YouTube, which is up on screen right now, jcable1234. So. And there you go. I needed a username. I picked it. And now to change, it's too much of a pain in the butt. So there it is. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Uh, Jeff, just an amazing, amazing capture Thank you so much for sharing it. Thank you so much for explaining it in such detail. I really, really do appreciate it. Uh, to everybody, go look this guy up. Jeff, I hope that you stay safe during this quarantine, man. Thank you. And I appreciate it. Love, love being on here and uh, love to do it again. And uh, and to you and everybody else out there, you know, stay safe. And uh, thanks to all those people out there that are, you know, all the first responders and all the people that are, out there at the supermarkets working and delivering FedEx. And I mean, man, I look at all those people that are putting themselves out in the public and, you know, it's, it's, you know, we get to sit here and do a podcast and talk about photography, but uh, there's a lot of people that don't have that luxury. So, you know, uh, thanks to all of them. And, and thanks to you for having me on the show. Uh, believe me, my pleasure. Great work. Go look him up. Jeffcable.com. Quick reminder as well, the Flickr critiques that we're doing, just go over, join Flickr, free account, paid account, doesn't matter, so it's not going to cost you anything. Join the Behind the Shot group on Flickr, submit your images with the Flickr tag BTS Critique, and Don Komarechka of the Photo Geek Weekly podcast, the macro genius, uh, shoots snowflakes handheld, wild. If you've never seen Don Komarechka stuff, Doncom with a K, doncom.ca is his website. And you'll be, trust me, amazed. His snowflake uh, site is skycrystals.ca. He's in Canada, so .ca. Uh, but we're doing those usually about once a month. So if you want to get in on them, head on over to Flickr and join in. Other than that, thanks again to my Jeff, my uh, guest, Jeff Cable, for joining me. Uh, this is Behind the Shot, the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. Thanks again. We'll see you on the next show.